This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Richard Boyatzis is distinguished university professor at Case Western Reserve University and he's one of the world's experts on emotional intelligence. His great new book is Helping People Change, Coaching with Compassion for Lifelong Learning and Growth. He has a BS in aeronautics and astronautics from MIT and a PhD in social psychology from Harvard. Using his intentional change theory, he studies sustained desired change at all levels of human endeavor, individuals, teams, organizations, communities, and countries. He's the author of more than 200 articles on leadership, emotional intelligence, competency development, coaching, neuroscience, and management education. He's got nine books, including the international bestseller, Primal Leadership, and Resonant Leadership. In this episode, Richard and I talk about how anyone can be effective as a coach, helping others learn and create sustainable change in their lives and their work by following a set of simple guidelines. Richard describes some of the findings from his powerful research on coaching, including the important observation that people are helped most and they're most open to exploring real possibilities for change when they are infused with a sense of hope in dreaming about the future. We discuss some of the specific methods for helping others enter that frame of mind and the many benefits that result. Richard offers this admonition for those of us who might strive to help others as a coach. Don't try to fix someone's problems for them so much as demonstrate care for them and engender trust through inquiry so they are open to imagining new pathways. Well, I hope you like the Work and Life podcast, and if you do, please subscribe. If you've not yet done so, do it now before you forget. And rate it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you're listening, so others are more likely to find it and enjoy it too. That really matters. Now, get set to listen to and learn from one of the masters in the field of leadership development about how to effectively help people change in all parts of their lives. It's Richard Boyatzis. Richard Boyatzis, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you, Stu, for having me. And by the way, congratulations on your new book on parenting. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, <clears throat> well, you know, as an organizational psychologist and someone who, like you, started out in the mental health field and has been teaching, coaching for decades, um, 
I just love that you are now going further in helping people change, coaching with compassion for lifelong learning and growth. You've been at this for a long time, Richard. Why did you write this new book? Where does this new work take us? This, um, this book is probably the most important labor of love I've, I've ever done. Hmm. It all started in the spring of 1967. The, actually, the very first study I got involved in, empirical study, on, uh, in psychology, when I was still studying um, designing interplanetary vehicles, was on how graduate students at MIT helped each other or didn't. Huh. Uh, Dave Kolb had, in, had asked me to join him on that, and we did it, and we published the paper. And, and then through the 70s, as a clinical psychologist, I was really spending a lot of time researching how therapists helped alcoholics and drug addicts or didn't. And continued to come back to the issue of, you know, then leaders, uh, and then since '87, when I became a full-time professor, the question was, can we help the 25 to 65-year-olds that often come to our hallowed halls change, or are we spinning wheels hmm. or creating a lot of blue smoke and mirrors? And 30 years ago, a uh, little over 30 years ago, at Case. I started a series of longitudinal studies to try to look at this. So basically we've had uh, 39 published longitudinal studies showing that you can help 25 to 65 year olds change their behavior in important ways, um, behavior in terms of emotional, social intelligence that predicts effectiveness, but also then about um, 15 years ago, we started a series of physiological studies. Hmm. So we have three fMRI studies and two hormonal studies. What all of that has done for us is to give us a very sound scientific base for the basic quest that I've been on for my whole career, which is how do we help others motivate themselves, learn, change? And I've got to say that... um, I started out thinking that goals were really important and, you know, you, feedback was essential. And, you know, by the time we started the neurological studies, mm-hmm. it became very clear that I was wrong. And those early studies were misleading. And that it comes down to this discovery that, as you started to summarize, that most of the time when we try to help someone, whether as a manager, leader, as a therapist, as a coach, as a trainer, as a parent, we try to fix them. We try to tell them what to do. We try to give them feedback, assuming that's motivating. And the net result is if we could look inside their heads, their brains, or their bodies, what we discover is that they're not experiencing all of this well-intended feedback and tips as help. They're experiencing it as somebody bullying them. Hmm. Bullying. Yeah, bullying, because people go into anywhere from a mild to an extreme defensive reaction Mm -hmm. in terms of stimulating the sympathetic nervous system. Don't tell me what to do. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. So speaking as an author of a book on parenting, I mean, yeah, it's I mean, we we often associate it with kids or with teenagers, but Mm -hmm. it turns out the same thing happens with adults. Yes, I was quoting one of my children there. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It happens, of course, with adults. Please continue with that idea. No, so um, what happened is about 20 years ago, 
as we were really focusing a lot on on this and decided to start using the term coaching as the synonym for all forms of helping. So we use coaching not Uh as professional coaches, which it can be, but really for anybody trying to do the help. And that anybody was trying it, to do what? Say it again. Anybody trying to help someone or mm-hmm. inspire them or motivate them. Mm-hmm. And what do you call the person that the coach is trying to help? Client. Okay. That's, um, that's, I mean, sometimes we say coachy, but that sounds a little yeah. weird. So. I, I prefer client as well. Please continue. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what became clear is that, um, and, and this was really nailed in the fMRI studies we were doing, is that when you... Re- remind listeners what fMRI studies oh, might sorry. be about, because not everybody does. Imaging. Mm-hmm. So in those studies, what you're doing is um, spending time, and we do a paradigm where we're coaching people mm-hmm. through different types, and then we have them go into this brain scan and mm-hmm. find out how they react to these different types of things. Mm-hmm. And it becomes very clear and we started to use the phrase coaching with compassion. Yes. You know, building on compassion is more of a Confucian approach of caring for another rather than the Western feeling for someone in pain. And the idea was it looked like from every one of these studies that when people changed in sustaining ways, more than just the, as you know, the honeymoon period of six weeks, mm-hmm. what happened was the person somehow reached them around their dreams, their values, their hopes, Mm -hmm. and stimulated a sense about possibilities. Mm -hmm. And that emotionally drove parts of the brain and the the hormonal system to be more open to new ideas. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we discovered along the way, although other people uh, in the field, as you know, uh, have been writing about this for a long time, that specific goals actually close people down. Hmm. And one of the things we discovered is that because, I mean, we weren't the first to discover this, but we reinforced it in our studies, is that one of the things that happens is when you put people into what's called the analytic network in the brain, where they're focusing and problem solving or doing something abstract, that what happens is they go into a, again, mild to extreme defensive response, Mm -hmm. their body gets all these stress hormones going, and they start to close down perceptually and cognitively. There's a narrowing. That's right, exactly. Matter of fact, one study showed that by giving people a dose of the nasal spray of epinephrine versus uh, oxytocin, which is uh, what happens with the opposite, the more renewing hormonal system, that your peripheral vision drops from about 180 to 30 degrees. Oh, literal narrowing of Literal vision. narrowing. Mm-hmm. And I think that explains what you and I have been wrestling with in our teaching and consulting for all these decades, which is why people in a lot of organizations say, well, it's not invented here and don't want to do anything, or that's not the way we do it here. Or even at the larger level, we see institutions uh, go into competition neglect and miss the whole shift. So it, it turns out that... You know, something like goal setting is useful later in the process, mm-hmm. but in the early stages, it gets people into a defensive mode. Mm-hmm. And although some people like to say, well, you know, I remember, I remember in the 90s, a number of executives saying to me, well, look, you know, I, I don't want to ask my PK people about what their dreams are or their personal vision, because suppose their dream isn't to work here. Mm-hmm. And my response was, then they're not now. 
So I have so many things I want to ask you further about, but I want to start with Kyle, about whom you write at the beginning of your book, uh, The Teacher, um, in, in describing what it is that makes us hungry to be helpful to other people. Can you give us just a, a brief summary of, uh, of what it is, that, well, about Kyle and about what it is that, that makes people so eager to be in a helping mode yeah, with it, others? It all started in her classroom, and um, she was trying to figure out what students were thinking about. So she started an exercise and, and started to be absolutely bowled over by what she was discovering. The exercise was she asked her uh, kids to write down what I wish my teacher knew. Such a great question. And um, the results were just amazing. And the next thing you know, you know, she's talking to other teachers about it. And other teachers are starting to get carried away. And, then, um, and I actually first learned about it through a, an article in the New York Times Sunday magazine about mm-hmm. uh, what she was doing. And then she ended up writing a book about it. But I mean, it comes down to a very simple issue is do you ask the person what's going on in their hearts or minds, what they're thinking about? I mean, another example I used that came from um, a, a friend, a colleague, where his five-year-old son was asked in his kindergarten class, this is the story of Aaron, to draw a picture of a house. He drew these vertical lines and horizontal lines, and then to draw a picture of an airplane, he drew some horizontal lines, and then a couple diagonal. And the next thing his parents know, they're called in for a parent-teacher conference, and the head of the school tells them that they think their son has emotional problems. They ask them uh, uncomfortable questions about their marriage and whether or not uh, Aaron is, feels safe at home and all that, which is you know, shocking to them because mm-hmm. at home he was a normal kid, you know, bouncing off the wall sometimes and sometimes not. Mm-hmm. So they go through all this, and at the end of this, toward the end of this meeting, the uh, teacher and the principal and the head guidance counselor of the school system said, by the way, uh, we are putting him into special class, you know, Mm -hmm. special ed class. Mm -hmm. And they said, no, no, we don't think that's, and they finally said, look, either he's going to a special ed class or you have to pull him out of the school system. So they agreed, they, they went home, really dejected. You know, they walk in the door and they're holding his drawings. Now, the stick drawings were nowhere near as picturesque as the other kids were drawing. And even clinically, sometimes you look at stick figures and you say, well, is it evidence of some kind of uh, psychopathology or something? But in this case, they walk in the door and Aaron sees his two drawings. And he's like, oh, Mommy, Daddy, you have my drawings. And they smile. They said, yes, and we love them. And (laughs) the father, who is an internal consultant in a large company, you know, had the wherewithal to get over his mm-hmm. and his wife's, you know, anger and dejection. And they sat down on the couch and they put the pictures in front of them on the coffee table. And he turned to Aaron and he said, we love your pictures. And he pointed to the one on the house that had yes. a couple vertical lines and horizontal lines and said, what did you draw? What did you see? Mm-hmm. Tell me mm-hmm. about your picture. And he said, well, these vertical, the, he didn't say vertical, but he's, those are these lines, he points to the vertical ones, are the water pipes where you bring water to the toilets and, you know, the uh, flush yes. out. And the horizontal lines are the electrical wires. And he does the same thing with the airplane. These are the fuel lines, uh-huh. the lines to control the wings. Yes. So here he is, a budding engineer architect who should have been encouraged for these things. Instead, 
they jumped to the assumption. Mm. See, part of it was that there was an absence of humanity and and feeling or affect. He was was arguing with the teacher a bit because he (laughs) was left-handed, and the teacher was trying to make him Mm. right-handed. So So, it took his parents three years to get him out of special class. So what's the upshot of this 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 incredible story with respect to what you what you teach and what you write about with respect to the helping relationships? I, I think we have to get used to asking people what they really want out of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many times do people go to a corporate training program and the assumption is you want to improve in the ways the company or the HR group mm-hmm. or some academic guru has said you should improve? Mm-hmm. When, you know, like, I, I have this expression, this, I say, look, once you're over 35, you know, you don't want to maximize your performance every day at work. Mm-hmm. So the dilemma ends up being, we really should get into a habit of asking people these kind of more open questions about what they're thinking about, what's on their mind. What they really um, care about. Yeah, what they really care so about. So tell us about intentional change theory and how that sort of frames what you're writing about here and, and well, uh, how, and how people can use it. But first describe it if you can in, it, in brief. It basically is um, a theory of change that I started working on with Dave Colden, 1967, early version of it. Mm-hmm. But it says that first, most human change is discontinuous and nonlinear. So it's going to happen in fits and starts. It's not going to be a smooth, continuous process. Mm-hmm. And that means that very often people will get impatient, telegraph emotionally their negativity, and stop the change process. When you look at what are the moments that seem to be, or the experiences that seem to be important for somebody to have a sustaining change, Mm -hmm. it seems to have five of these moments of emergence, we call it in complexity theory, these things that pop into your head like an epiphany. One is where you all of a sudden see something you'd love to do in life, or you have a sense about the kind of person you want to be, you start to have a dream. And that starts to create a sense of whether you call it a personal vision or, um, or a dream, but mm-hmm. what happens is you experience a sense of hope about it. Mm-hmm. If you have that, you're eligible for the second one, which is where you start to see how you come across to others. Uh, I call it the real self, and the real self isn't what you think of yourself, because that's often delusional, mm-hmm. but how do you act? How do other people see you? And then the inevitable comparison to your ideal, (laughs) and you end up with some kind of personal balance sheet. The third discovery or epiphany is about a learning agenda, which is something you would love to learn to do. And this is not a performance improvement plan. It's not something, you know, like your internist tells you exercise more and lose weight. This is something you really are looking forward to. Mm -hmm. The fourth ends up being the practice experimentation and practice with the new thoughts, feelings, behavior. And then the fifth... And by that time, you're ready for goals and feedback. Am I right? Oh, that's right. Matter of fact, I think the goals really come in under the learning plan. Uh-huh. Right, of course. once you have an agenda of what you'd like to do, then to set some specific goals mm-hmm. um, can really help you focus your resources. But all of this is happening in the context of what I call the fifth discovery, and that is a caring relationship, mm-hmm. a trusting, a resonant relationship. And basically, in intentional change theory, we say people move from one of these discoveries to the next one when they enter this tipping point 
of this positive emotional attractor state, and that's the state where... Positive emotional attractor state. Yes. It's, uh, you're physiologically in what's called the parasympathetic nervous system mm-hmm. state, which is your hormones. Hormones are secreting you into this state where you actually are renewing. Your immune system is working and mm-hmm. cognitively you're at your best, etc. You're in a neurological network, or most of the time in a neurological network, called the empathic network, where you're open to new ideas and people, mm-hmm. and you're just describing it with positive affect. And that's, that's related to the, uh, the resonant relationships in what way? Well, it's related to each one of the stages, because okay. this tipping point... See, most of the time, given the pressures in life and work, we're in a negative emotional attractor state. We're in a mild to extreme stress state. We're in the analytic mode, uh, or we're just worried about the negatives. Yes. And that means that Rigidity, we are closing down, narrowing. Yeah, we're impaired. Mm-hmm. And to get us to be open to considering the other pe- person we're talking to or another possibility, mm-hmm. we have to help people tip into this positive emotional attractor state. Mm-hmm. So the tipping point enables you to move ahead along the process of the change. So wh- what we're going to get into when we uh, come back from a short break, which we're going to need to get to in just a moment, is um, what positive coaching actually looks like and how you can bring it to bear on important relationships uh, at work and elsewhere. What Before we get there, though, before we uh, before we hit the break point, give us a preview. What, in essence, is positive coaching, and uh, is it accessible to anyone, or do you need professional training, or what? It's very basic human consideration. (laughs) It's actually, you almost have to peel away the negatives that you're professionally trained to think about. Uh, It's a very basic process of being open, being caring, and thinking about the future. And, and helping others to do the same. Yes. I mean, because, because of the unconscious, really fast, thousands of a second, uh, emotional contagion that occurs, if the person in the helping role, whether the leader, the mm-hmm. coach, the manager, the parent, if that person isn't in that state, they are going to telegraph and, if you will, infect the other person with whatever negative state they're in. So it ends up being an issue of personal management, mm-hmm. mindfulness, whatever you want to call it as well as trying to help the other person get into this more positive, open state. And, and I want to underscore that this way of interacting with other people, intending to help them become unstuck and to change in, in sustainable ways and directions that they want to go, is a skill set and a mindset that's available to all of us, is it not? Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, we used to call it good friends <laughs> when we had time for friends. <laughs> So let's let's get into uh, what what this model looks like in terms of uh, the the essential tools. Uh, I know we can't cover them all. People are going to have to read, helping people change to to learn uh, in depth. But what are what are some of the the most useful starting points for people interested in becoming more capable in helping others change? Let me let me talk about the four initial questions. Okay. 
And I, I know this is possible for folks to do uh, without a, any training because it's a regular assignment I give to my graduate students. And, you know, they go off and have these talks with mm-hmm. other people. And I want to emphasize the fact that it doesn't mean you have to sit down for a heavy-duty conversation to do this, because a certain amount of this, um, using these questions, ends up being really good for people to practice. And I suggest people practice in 15-minute segments, mm-hmm. you know, where you just try it over coffee or mm-hmm. whatever. Going for a walk. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Going for a walk is a great one. Okay, so here's one of the questions. If your life were fantastic 10 to 15 years from now, what would it be like? Mm-hmm. And just let the person talk. And if you ask questions, the questions should be questions of pulling more information, not you're thinking, what? <laughs> Which is not a really open-ended question. Not judgment, but inquiry. <clears throat> That's right. So <clears throat> the concept, if the person says something like, well, I'd like to travel. Travel where? You know, for how long? With whom? But the whole idea is that some people, you know, that question could spark a conversation about their bigger sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why it's relevant at work, is that very often people want to feel like what they're doing is meaningful. Well, that starts with how it's meaningful to them as well as to the community and others. Mm-hmm. So that's one question. Sometimes people feel that's a little kind of hokey and it's a little hard to get into the, 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 a big dream. So then I say, okay, if you're not going to pull for hope as a basic emotion, then pull for playfulness. You just won $80 million in the Powerball after tax. How does your work or life change? That after-tax piece is very important. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> like, what are you actually holding there in your pocket? Yeah. All right. How does your life change? Is that the question? Yeah. If, if you won $80 million after tax, how would your work or life change? Mm-hmm. As, a no, as a more playful way to get into it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, you know, especially whenever the Powerball or Mega Millions or whatever gets up to three or $400 million or higher, a lot of people sit around and talk about that you know, what they would use the money for, or how they'd spend it, or, mm-hmm. or whatever. And it ends up being a very light conversation. A second theme and way to pull it is to pull towards gratitude, or actually the emotion of compassion. And that's a simple question of who helped you the most in your life mm-hmm. become who you are. And by talking about a few individuals, you end up stirring up all of these positive states. This mm-hmm. actually works quite well. and um, Quite well in, in helping people to connect with what they care about yes. most. Yes. What it does is it arouses this positive emotional attractor state mm-hmm. physiologically and um, emotionally, which then allows them to start thinking of other things. I mean, one of the things when I, mm-hmm. I do this exercise in a lot of my talks, I just did it a couple times in London last week and mm-hmm. in Athens and Nicosia the week before, and, and, and after I get people to think about it for a while, then I get them to share a story with another person in the room, I then draw out how people felt about it. And they, they always describe these feelings of gratitude or feeling more centered or excited or a sense of loss because they, you know, the person has passed away. Mm-hmm. But through all of that, they end up feeling 
really excited in some way because all of a sudden they're feeling very present and it's a very genuine feeling. But then I ask them, whose list will you be on? Is that the fourth question? No, it actually isn't. It's part of the process. <laughs> it's an elaboration of the gratitude question. The, okay. fourth, the fourth question really has to do with pulling for more of what we sometimes call jargony mindfulness. You could call it centering or a sense of personal harmony. And it's a simple question. What, are, what values are really important to you? Mm-hmm. Now, it turns out that you could ask any of those same questions, not of an individual, but of a whole group of people. so A society, a nation. Yeah, you could. And in fact, um, although he was a little odd in many ways, Ross Perot's uh, attempt to talk about using electronic town halls to get the entire country involved in a dialogue about issues was a brilliant statement because right now people aren't talking to each other. They're only talking to people who agree with them. And um, we, we don't get to any shared vision or so, shared possibilities. So these questions, uh, to begin with, are are designed to help uh, others with whom you're in conversation right. uh, to articulate some version of their ideal self. Is that right? Yes. And uh, to because of the feelings involved mm-hmm. uh, and that stimulate these this psychophysiological state, mm-hmm. it puts them in a position where they're more open to a new idea or another person. Mm-hmm. And that ends up, I mean, one of the dilemmas we have is that, you know, very often if you're going in, it's like a lot of people have white coat syndrome, which case they go to see their internist and their blood pressure goes up just because they're going to the doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, we, if we're going to hope that people might do something positive, whether about their health or anything, we have to reverse that. I mean, I'm, I'm, my argument is one of the reasons why treatment adherence is abysmally low is that many physicians, and I spend half of my talks in hospitals these days, wow. uh, many physicians and nurses still try to scare the hell out of us mm-hmm. rather than uh, playing to this more positive state. On the theory that uh, that sort of... Uh uh, sense of uh, I'd better comply or else is is going to be helpful to the patient in terms right. of they're doing what they need to do. Right, and we know from actual research both on weight loss, on cessation of cigarette smoking, and on practicing safe sex from a variety of different studies and meta-analyses that that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, you can show people all the horror films you want, you can have people limp in and t- give you horror stories, and it doesn't motivate people to change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It depresses them, and then they revert. Um, mm-hmm. So the idea is to practice with some of these simple questions. Uh, and like I'm saying, even if you're at work, I mean, one of my statements is anybody who's kicking off a meeting who starts with financials is an ineffective leader because they're turning the audience off. Of course, financials are important, but if you start with it, it puts everybody into this analytic defensive mode. So you contrast that to some of the most powerful and engaging leaders. They start with a story, or they start by asking us a story. Uh, Tom Strauss, who was a very effective CEO of Summa Health Systems, 
used to have a one-hour meeting in his office with the heads of each of the hospitals and outpatient clinics and his, uh, the 16 of them in his system. And he would, as they finished their meeting, he would point to two of them and say, um, bring a story in next week about somebody helped in your mm-hmm. facility this coming week. And he would surrender the first five to ten minutes of the 60-minute meeting by having these two people tell their story the following week. Mm-hmm. The guy was brilliant. He's sitting there reminding everybody that they're there to heal people mm-hmm. and their positive stories. Mm-hmm. So it gets them in a place where then he can go into the budget issues and the variances and all that kind of stuff. I think so, it was Napoleon who said that leaders are dealers in hope. That's right. <laughs> You've got to create that uh, sense of openness. Also said it, so. <laughs> I wonder who said it first. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm so, sure Napoleon said it before Walt Disney. Right? Exactly. So, well, actually, probably Aristotle said it because it usually all comes back to some Greek. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? <laughs> right. So it begins with opening up pathways to 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 exploring uh, who we really want to become. So those are wonderful tips for, uh, for beginning, for opening. Uh, what else is essential for people to know who are interested in skilling up and creating more opportunities for mutual learning and growth in their important relationships? To be, to be a little cautious about the tendencies they may have developed over the past. So, for example, um, a lot of people will, out of the goodness of their heart and good intentions, uh, give somebody tips or tell them what to do because mm-hmm. they just want to save time or they don't want mm-hmm. the person to hurt themselves. And in the process... Or it might be that the client is asking for that. Just tell me what to do. Yeah. Well, and if somebody says it that way, yes. I don't believe them. <laughs> so what I don't want to have to think about it. Just tell me what to do. That's right. And what that means is basically you're doing what we call coaching for compliance. You're just telling somebody something and... Mm. You know, they're listening with closed ears. Hmm. So part of it is, um, as I like to point out, constructive criticism is still criticism. And Mm -hmm. if the person is not genuinely asked for some feedback or criticism, Hmm. it's better to keep it to yourself because you won't help the person change. Uh, You know, and if uh, sometimes people do it just because they want guilt reduction or you know, they just want to vomit or get revenge or something. But if you really want to help motivate the person, you know, it's like the issue of performance reviews. Performance reviews are good a lot of times because people need to know where they are in terms of their objectives and what they're supposed to do at work. But you never, ever do them at the same time you try to do a development discussion. Right, yes. Because you're killing the benefit of both Mm -hmm. conversations. Mm -hmm. Right, and, and we have now, you know, like I said, the psychophysiological data to show that really backfires on you. You so got to get people firing is, on those positive emotional attractors to yeah. be able to uh, genuinely, as you say, explore opportunities for okay. change. Now, if you have a good relationship with somebody, they will at times come to you when they're ready for some feedback whether it's about something like a presentation or it's something about a paper they've written, you know, in our university world or in, um, in, in, in organizations, sometimes it's an idea for a new program or initiative or product or service. Or at home, being a better parent or a better spouse. You bet. And if you have a caring relationship, 
the person feels freer to be able to come to you and say, hey, I need your input on this. And that's very different than somebody saying, you know, come on, it's 730 and you still didn't take the garbage out. Hmm. Were you listening in on my conversation at home last night? No, just kidding. That that never happens. Um, (laughs) Right. So if there's an assumption that I believe you're someone who cares about me, I'm much more open to asking for advice in a specific way. Is is that what you're getting at? Yes. And so how do you help people to know that you actually care about them? Well, as, as a coach, as a friend, <laughs> seems like a fundamental idea that most of the world's religions have been trying to teach us for a long time. Yeah, the, the problem is, again, one of the things we now know is that people pick up the emotions of others in eight to 40 thousandths of a second, which is deeply unconscious. Mm-hmm. So um, it starts with you actually genuinely caring. And to think that you can put one over on somebody around you, I mean... Very few people are as good as Denzel Washington or Meryl Streep at pulling that off. Mm -hmm. And actually, they don't even fake it. They just recreate the actual emotion. So part of it ends up being this theme that we've heard lately, but also for a long time of being genuine or authentic or whatever. So Uh, how do you help people to get to that point? Because many people who are who are compelled to be in coaching situations for all kinds of reasons, after, yeah. whether it's at work or at home or wherever, uh, you know, they're, they're distracted, they're, they're disrupted, they're, they're anxious about all kinds yeah. of things happening around them. To be able to really tune in, that takes some discipline and concerted effort. You bet. What, how do so you get there? Or what tips do you issue. have? Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, here's, please. Here's one issue at work. In many of our organizations, we have built up if we're if we've been effective at parts of this a kind of culture of results or performance what we need to do is to complement that with a culture of development not replace it complement it. Mm-hmm. so the idea is you can yes be focused on performance and results but the people around you know that you also focused on development and if people think that you as a leader or manager have some investment in their growth and development, um, they start at a different point in the process of looking at everything from results to new ideas. So part of it ends up being thinking, not letting yourself get seduced into thinking the tasks are the end-all and be-all. Right. Uh, and, and most people, when you point that out, will see, ah, not only do I need to develop uh, you know, s- better performance in the near term and encourage that and reward it um, and direct it, but I also need to be growing future performance capacity right. in, in the people around me. So here you take a subject which I'm sure you've covered in innumerable ways in your new book on, on parenting – um, and leading your family. Parents um, Who Lead. It, it's what? It's called Parents Who Lead. Parents Who Lead. That's a great title. I Thank thought, you. When I saw it, I thought, oh, that's ingenious. Uh, appreciate that. But, but, but continue your thought, is, please. If you come home you know, from work, mm-hmm. and the first thing you say 
to your children, however, whether they're eight or 18, is did you do your homework? Mm-hmm. You're A, focused on the tasks. B, you're focused on something which is accusatorial. Yes. And, you know, if you have a spouse or partner, if the first thing you say to them is, um, you know, did you get the storm door fixed or did you take care of the dry cleaning or did you cook dinner? Again, it's focusing on them as a kind of human resource Mm -hmm. using doing tasks. And while that's not bad, if that's the only way you interact with them, then people will feel as if they're instruments. Yes, and it's so easy to fall into that. Yeah. So and this that's is again where the pressure of stress and a lot of things that we go through day to day kind of mount up. I, I, I know that I'm guilty of that all the time. You know, both at home and at work, uh, because there's so much that I want other people to do. Uh, so we only have a, a, another couple minutes left here, Richard. What what advice would you give to me and others uh, like me, which is probably pretty much everyone, in helping us to become you know, better able to really tune into the needs and interests of others so that we can demonstrate true compassion? I, I was doing an initial draft of the last chapter in our, in our new book, and um, I, I, my first operating functioning title was Get Over Yourself, and my co-authors and uh, Ellen and Melvin and, uh, and then Jeff Keogh, the editor, said, come on, the whole book's positive. You can't go negative all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. So I changed the title to be a call for compassion or something, but, mm-hmm. but the point was, I think we're suffering at a time of rampant narcissism. And because the narcissism is combined with a heightened sense of defensiveness, which leads to an awful lot of self-righteous thinking, whether we're talking politically in our communities or in our families or at work, we're backing ourselves into corners. And if anybody for a moment questions that, I would say, look at what's become the most popular form of photography, the selfie. Mm -hmm. I mean, when my wife and I were in London or in Athens or couple days in Santorini before that, you couldn't go three feet without somebody pulling out their phone and taking a picture of themselves. So what's the antidote? I think it's caring for others. Mm -hmm. I think if we stop and say, part of my reason for being is to not just do what I'm doing, but to help others. Every day, all the time. Yeah. And, And so... So how do you help people to pause and ask themselves that question so that they can engage as, as truly helpful people to others as coaches and to be uh, on the lists of many other people who might be reflecting on who, right. they're, grat- who they're grateful for? Well, you mean how do you do that without drugs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. How do you do that with your own willful, you know, commitment to being in a, in a caring frame of mind. And sometimes it's asking the question, as I said with the Aaron story, um, mm-hmm. what do I mean? Mm-hmm. So instead of being when curious. somebody says something, you know, having your first emotional reaction, which you then vocalize of being your antipathy toward it or your generalization about, you know, how they're, 
a part of a, a group of people that obviously are doing stinking thinking of one sort or another, if you stop and ask yourself, what do they mean? What are they caring about? Mm-hmm. You have to be genuinely curious. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to ask you a question, Richard, that I probably should have started this conversation with, but we have about a minute left, uh, and I'm going to, I, I have to ask you, uh, what would life be like for you in 15 years if you could have your ideal scenario unfold? Well, my wife and I are, uh, I'm, I'm living on Cape Cod and in, in Boston, even though I'm full-time at Case, I go back, and because most of my students fly in from other cities and countries, most of my interactions is on Zoom or Skype or anything. Uh-huh. And um, we, we're having a great time. You know, we're part of the thing about living in nature or being particularly downtown in Boston is uh, you get the best of both worlds. I mean, right now I'm looking at the Atlantic Ocean, uh, and uh, I love it. So I'm hoping in 10 to 15 years I'm still able to have these kind of conversations. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, I'm continuing to discover some things about this change process. I'd like to ramp it up to see if we can help people, not just individually and one-on-one, but to start to make it more possible for people to do these kinds of things in communities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and to uh, be able to stimulate more of that, but at the same time have more hours to be able to spend time with my wife and currently my two dogs. Um, But, you know, just being able to spend some time enjoying life. You are living the dream, it sounds like, Richard. It feels feels like it, but what (laughs) I have to do is rebalance it a bit (laughs) and hopefully in 10 to 15 years. Richard, uh, thank you so much for all the incredible work you've done for so long. It's been so influential uh, in my thinking and for so many of us. Uh, tell us, what is the best place for listeners to learn more about the wonderful work you're doing and, and your new book? Well, it, Helping People Change is available not only on Amazon, but also at a variety of bookstores and or any bookstore. And also there's a steady stream we have a Facebook page called Helping People Change where we talk about different articles and podcasts, so uh, I'll be announcing this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's a way for people to get a hold of smaller doses of the same thoughts. Fantastic. Richard Boyatzis, thank you so much. Thank you, Stu. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Richard Boyatzis and that it enriched your thinking, as it did mine, about what it takes to be helpful to others who are trying to change something in their lives, in their work. Here, then, is a challenge for you, an invitation. The next time you have an opportunity to help someone you know, could be a colleague, somebody at work, or maybe it's a family member or a friend, Someone who is stuck and is wanting to change something, try resisting the temptation that most of us have to just give advice, tell them what to do, and instead start with a question that demonstrates your genuine interest and curiosity about what they really care about and how they imagine their world to be better. A question that 
encourages them to dream about the future that they'd want to see for themselves. What happens when you try this approach? I'd love to hear from you. So get in touch with me directly. It's friedman at wharton.upenn.edu or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Business Radio. Tune in for on-air broadcasts of Work and Life on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern. For more about this episode's guest and about previous guests, visit workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends, your family, your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.